Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tech Chat. Russ here, and uh, Pete and I have got a great show for you coming up. We're going to do the usual roundup of AWS updates, and there's a couple of things in there that I know Pete gets very excited about, so I'm looking forward to hearing all about that. How are you, Pete? Very well, Russ, and guys, thanks for joining the show again. Uh, before we kick off, I actually want to do a big call out to Chris Williams, who's uh, Mr. Wire on Twitter, who sent us a pretty cool photo of himself shoveling a heck of a lot of snow while listening to Tech Chat. Russ, uh, I don't know how much, uh, how many hours that would have taken, but it was a heck of a mountain of snow there. It looks, so he's standing in front of this mound of snow, and it looks like it's got to be over six feet of snow. Yeah, I, I think it's probably reaching up to the uh, the windows in the uh, the first story of his house there. So, uh, Chris, well done, mate. It's uh, quite an achievement. Uh, you may want to invest in some mechanical machinery because uh, that looks like a heck of a job. So, uh, so Pete, uh, firstly, let's uh, talk about what's happening in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where yes. we have another pop. We do, Russ. And uh, how many pops does that take us to now? Well, that takes us to 24 in the US and 71 worldwide. So uh, lots of CloudFront locations uh, for you to uh, help get your content out faster. Absolutely. And I just want to be, I'm super excited about another service that we've released. Um, and this is called Amazon Chime. And uh, it's been making a fair bit of noise out in the, uh, in the ecosystem because Amazon Chime, you and I have been internally trialing this. So uh, we've had a bit of a preview, but Chime is a modern, fully managed communications service. So essentially a whole platform from AWS um, that assists people to be able to collaborate both inside the organization and outside the organization by using voice, video, and chat. And essentially Chime lets you run online meetings much easier with you know, high fidelity audio, high quality video, and uh, let's see, also you know, provide IM messaging to each other across both the desktops and the mobile devices as well. And it's actually quite cool because it's a managed service, so you don't actually have to deploy any infrastructure yourself or build out anything. You simply subscribe to the service as you're probably conditioned to already um, and simply start using the service straight away for all of your collaborative needs. Right? So it's uh, very, very handy. Yeah, it's great. One of the features I like in here, Pete, is that uh, if you schedule a meeting and you include the um, the Chime um, address in the meeting invite, it will actually call everyone at the appropriate time. So people don't longer have the excuse that they forgot uh, their phones or their desktops will actually ring them at the right time for the meeting. So uh, that's quite a nice feature. I think it's actually one of the killer functions between you and I, because uh, how many times have you fumbled for the pin at the bridge ID while you're on the go? Isn't it nice when this thing actually calls you and says, hey, uh, push this button to join the call instead of trying to you know, fumble for that meeting invite in your calendar? Yeah, very nice. Yes. And look, it uh, comes in three different flavors. Or basically, so Chime Basic basically gives you access to one-on-one uh, -on -one voice and video calls uh, and to chat uh, across devices. But uh, Chime Plus adds the ability to share your screen as well, so you can collaborate and visually see what's going on at the other end. So great for um, running and hosting presentations. And it also integrates with your company directory. So uh, you can then, uh, you know, collaborate collaborate with all the folks in your business and Chime Pro um, gives you the online features so you can actually schedule and host meetings of up to a uh, hundred people and you also get uh, 
personalized vanity URLs. So you can create um, your own personal conference meeting rooms. Um, you know, I've got Dr. Pete, in fact. So uh, that's what I've been using internally. Uh, but yes, if you sign up, uh, there is a, a 30-day trial. Pete, uh, Pete, just a quick question. How productive do you think a meeting would be with 100 people on it? I think you want to make them all go quiet. And that's one of the other cool things. You can actually mute everybody. You know, it's like, you know, uh, you have that network problem, right, where every machine wants to talk at the same time and people start and stop when they hear somebody else talking. So, uh, yeah, so CSMACD is the protocol, detect collision detection and avoidance. Uh, yeah, not very effective, Russ. So I think, yeah, the mute buttons are really handy because you can also mute other people. So how many times have you had somebody go on a, a second call or uh, maybe you've gone to the bathroom? Uh, yes, you definitely want to turn those guys off. <laughs> so leaving time behind, let's have a bit of a chat about what's happening with EBS because uh, there's been a lot of movement on EBS recently and this new update is uh, is especially exciting, I thought. Yeah, this is very, very cool. I mean, most of us have been using EBS. I mean, EBS is the elastic, elastic block storage where, you know, you attach, you know, a predefined size or uh, amount of IOPS that you've allocated for performance for that particular block storage device attached to your EC2 instance. Now, what we've released is something called Elastic Volumes, which is really cool because it applies to the existing Elastic Block Storage service. And this capability gives you the ability to programmatically offer the console uh, through a couple of clicks, uh, change the live volumes and you know in cloud we often talk about you know uh, capacity planning can be delayed till later so quite often you know you might have chosen a particular volume size attach it to your ec2 instance and then you go you know i'm running out of space now i want to add more so with elastic um, volumes you literally say hey increase this volume and it happens and then it can go with, with zero downtime in the past what often used to happen is people would uh, snapshot a volume and then rehydrate it again to a different uh, size volume you would then expand that volume to spend the entire new ebs block and reattach it which often resulted in downtime what this means now today is you can literally in flight in production change the ebs volumes uh, to be larger change the uh, the actual throughput as well as the types of volumes that are being used and the nice thing about it is you can actually look at the Amazon CloudWatch metrics and perhaps use Lambda to trigger, you know, either scaling or change events. So uh, it's really making Elastic, uh, you know, disk volumes really powerful, uh, whereby, you know, you have, you know, yet another opportunity to eliminate any zero, you know, any downtime down to zero. Yeah, I think you're right. That ability to do that programmatically using Lambda and CloudWatch is the real killer application here. And for big data, I mean, you know, your data will grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, sometimes you don't want to have a huge disk with nothing on it. You want to gradually increase it as it, as it grows. So by uh, using the this elastic volume f function now, you can simply grow it elastically as you need it. So yeah, yeah. Very, 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 very nice and very, very powerful because it can be fully automated as well. I love that. Now, back uh, in reInvent timeframe, we talked about a couple of the new generation instances that were announced, and one of them was the i3s, and yes. we're delighted to say that these are now in the wild. They are out in the wild and currently available. So just to recap what they are, so the i3 instances are the latest generation for storage-optimized high I.O. instances, and are designed for really demanding high I.O. workloads. And they have feature very low latency, um, non-volatile memory express-based SSDs. So these are super-fast disks as well. Um, they're great for workloads for transaction processing, you no know, SQL, you know, your favorite data warehousing, 
analytics and uh, you know even things like Elasticsearch. You know you can certainly run those. They come in six different sizes with up to 64 vCPUs with uh, uh, 488 gigabits of memory and uh, with uh, 15.2 terabytes of locally attached SSD storage, which is a lot and it's also very very fast. And the thing that really blows my mind is when you actually look at the disk performance, they can deliver up to 3.3 million random IOPS at 4K block sizes and up to 16 gigabytes per second of sequential disk throughput, which is pretty much phenomenal. So if you want to churn through data, uh, you can do that very, very quickly because they're also powered by dual socket custom Xeon E52686 V4 Broadwell processors. Gosh, you're a mouthful. Pete, I've said, I've said this before, <laughs> and I'll say it again. You're never more excited than when you're talking specs. Yes. Well, look, as a kid, I used to you build a it. lot of hardware. So uh, this is kind of like you know rediscovering the inner child. But yeah, look, they're super fast. Clock speeds are at 2.3 gigahertz. They also support enhanced networking with the um, Elastic Network Adapter and uh, you know, fundamentally EBS optimized by default at no additional cost. So go turn them on, go have a play, see what you think. And then you know, if you also um, you know, want to fiddle, you know, combine those, even though you get a lot of storage with the Elastic Volumes and uh, you know, your world's your oyster, Russ. That's true, Pete. Now, I've got to follow that with talking about uh, tagging. Yes. And so a lot of people are not going to get as excited about tagging as they are about the new i3s. However, for for certain applications, this is going to be important. So we've just added the ability now to tag your keys within KMS, the key management service. Mm. So what this means is it obviously then gives you the ability to track those costs in your cost allocation report much more easily because you can then do it by tag. So you can kind of see, um, you know, which keys are being used uh, the most and obviously track those charges. So um, just a quick update on KMS there, but uh, but important for some for some people. And tagging is so important. You know, if you're not doing tagging in your accounts, as we had, we talked about in the past shows, but it's really really useful because it gives you yet another you know more metadata about what your systems are actually doing. Now something else that's also right up your alley, Russ, is uh, something to do with Lander and uh, some great, greater visibility of processing and quite often that's for big data and uh, big streams of input. That's right. So this is a really nice new feature, actually. So we talk about Lambda a lot as being uh, an event-driven type of type of process. And one of the things that people love to do with Lambda is to point it at a stream. Uh, and typically those streams are either an Amazon Kinesis stream or it's a DynamoDB stream. Uh, so the DynamoDB stream obviously is, it reflects any changes that have happened to your underlying DynamoDB table. Now, one of the things that people really want to understand is what's the age of the records within the stream? Mm -hmm. So essentially, when when the Lambda function actually processes it, how long has that entry been in the, in the stream? So we've added now a new metric called iterator age. And what that is, Pete, well, that will tell you the age of the last record for each batch that Lambda's processing. Awesome. And that age is the difference between the time that Lambda received the batch and the time that the last record in that batch was written initially to the stream. So what we're trying to pick up here is um, this kind of depth of age of the records in your stream, but also to pick up very quickly any issues. If records are not being read from the stream, um, you can obviously pick that up quite quickly uh, and do something about it. Yeah, that's very handy because it gives you more visibility and insights into you know how 
much, you know, well, I guess how stale the data actually is becoming, right? Because, you know, you, got, you talk about hot and cold data and uh, it's also nice to have some visibility and telemetry into, you know, how is that data cooling while it's actually in transit between system to system. So this is a great indicator that's going to give you that visibility. And it's also worth calling out that there are a whole bunch of other metrics um, that are available uh, for, for Lambda, which some of us may not be aware of. And, um, you know, we've got things like the number of invocations and number of areas that most people would have seen already. But, uh, you know, in the last show, we talked about dead letter queues as well. So, uh, you know, there's also a metric for dead letter errors, which, you know, so if, if, if something isn't making its way into the dead letter queue, we also give you visibility of that. We also give you visibility of throttles. And, you know, if you are, you know, if, if you hit a limit for the number of, um, of calls that you're making into Lambda, of course, you can increase that by letting us know. But if you hit a ceiling, uh, we'll give you an error 429 to let you know that you've actually failed. So that's also displayed as a CloudWatch metrics. And of course, now we've got the iterator age um, uh, you know, metric we just talked about. So lots and lots of visibility into how to, um, things are being processed. Absolutely. Now, moving into the world of uh, more developer type stuff, Pete, tell us about some of the changes to Elastic Beanstalk. Yes, so uh, I, I love a whole bunch of uh, Beanstalk functionality and I'm a big fan of it. Uh, so we've now actually um, provide support within Beanstalk for, for custom platforms. Uh, so what that really means is now previously you would um, use pre-configured Elastic Beanstalk um, environments to run your application. So you can run your .NET or your Python or Ruby code uh, on top of that uh, environment. Uh, and quite often customers would often run um, you know, and configure the environment over and above what we actually gave them. So we gave them the pre-configured platforms, and then they would go ahead and add additional configuration files. And uh, you know, when you bundle your applications, you can actually add that uh, to you know at install, at runtime, and so forth um, to give you more functionality. So maybe you add some extra libraries or make some changes on top of the existing Amazon uh, machine image that was actually making up the Beanstalk environment. So now we give you the ability to actually um, bring your own Amy's and be able to you know, completely customize that even further. So it's, it's, it's actually quite a nice way of now building a highly modified uh, Beanstalk runtime environment for your application so you can actually uh, not just rely on scripts but also be far more aggressive with how you make changes to your Amy's. And if you, for example, run a continuous integration server and automated pipelines that potentially take your code and do continuous delivery and deployment into production, uh, you could you know, tie it into things like Packer.io for creating you know, custom images and tool chains uh, and then have those feed directly into Beanstalk in a much more highly customized way. So Russ, lots of functionality there, uh, which is going to make a lot of developers' lives um, a lot more uh, easier and uh, gives you more fle flexibility and functionality. Pete, you mentioned Amy's there a couple of times. Just for, for people who are not familiar with, with Amy, Amy is an AMI, which is an Amazon machine image. That's so it's right. basically a kind That's of right. a pre-baked image with all of the... Um, the software and configuration already in there. Exactly right. It's all about the machine images, which are the templatized operating systems that have been pre-configured for you to use, which either we do for you as vanilla versions, or you can create your own custom Amazon machine images um, as well. Now, by the way, it's interesting that you know, the, the Americans actually say it as armies. We actually say it as Amy's. So there you go. URLs, URLs, you know, that kind of stuff. Yes, well, uh, let's not get into that. Now, uh, I know that one of your pet loves, apart from talking about the specs within machines, is gaming. Yes. Uh, tell us what's going on with GameLift. Yes, absolutely. So 
Um, Amazon Game Lift um, essentially allows um, developers to be able to very quickly spin up, um, you know, back of back of the game infrastructure, right? So think of it as Game Lift is a managed service for deploying, operating, and really scaling dedicated game servers that often are used for, you know, session-based multiplayer games. And a lot of people spend a lot of time doing that. Um, so Game Lift tries to make the, make this a lot easier by giving the developer, the game developer in this case, a chance to very quickly spin up that infrastructure, you know, in, in minutes as opposed to spending a great deal of hours. Um, it runs on AWS, and what we've done with GameLift, it now the the SDK now supports the Unreal Engine, um, Unity, and anything really that's custom developed by yourself, either in C Sharp or in C So uh, we've now expanded the ability for game developers, so quite often indie developers who run small teams, to become really, really super effective and efficient in being able to spin up the the backend infrastructure for a game platform. So whether it's to do with high scores or you know having tournaments, um, a lot of heavy lifting gets taken care of by the game lift backend infrastructure. So. Yeah, it's a very nice, quick way of spinning up mass infrastructure on demand. So if you're building games or you're in the developer or know someone who is, um, yeah, certainly get them to have a look at um, the uh, the GameLift infrastructure backend and the SDK. Now, Pete, uh, be honest with uh, with myself and with uh, with the listeners. Mm. Have you been gaming this week and under the name of research? <laughs> no, I can't say I have, but I may have been gaming the week before <laughs> with my kids. <laughs> Yes, uh, I, I'm a big gamer, and actually, you know, just to share a little bit, actually, one of my first jobs was actually writing video games, and uh, some of the guys in my team uh, actually dug up a game called Shadowrun, and they managed uh, to actually find my my uh, my game credits in the YouTube video. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it was definitely a flashback. Uh, but changing topics, uh, enough about me, uh, Russ. Now, there's a whole bunch of cool stuff happening with uh, Amazon API gateway integration with um, step functions. Yeah, tell us all about it. So this seemed to me to be a fairly natural pairing. So obviously, uh, API gateway has been out for a long time, but step functions is relatively new, but it seemed to be uh, something that was very natural for these two to go together. Absolutely. So, so as you may recall, during reInvent, we talked about um, step functions and really step functions um, you know, make it easy to coordinate, you know, the many components of a distributed application, aka microservices, uh, into a series of steps, uh, usually into a workflow. So um, now what you can do with uh, AWS uh, API Gateway is to basically create a front door to enter into those workflows which are powered by AWS step functions. So, you know, the nice thing about that is with only a handful of clicks inside the management console, you can create an API, obviously, uh, and then be able to front and provide connectivity straight into your step functions, which could be very either very simple or very complicated state machines or finite state machines, to be more specific, uh, to coordinate the actual you know um, coordination and movement and state changes within those systems. So, what that often means is you know you might build a uh, a system that does things like you know resizing of uploaded images, uh, or you might do things like verification of new user registrations. Um, what's also quite cool about this is, by doing that, you can also integrate human activity tasks into your step functions into your application. So you know by kicking off your step functions, you can then essentially you know maybe push out an email via SES 
or a notification of some sort to a user, uh, pass on a token and have somebody click on an approval or a non-approval uh, link in an email or an application, which will then continue, which will then call the API gateway endpoint, which will then continue and kick off the next step in those activities. So it's a very nice way of, uh, again, simplifying and providing integration points into essentially workflows, uh, which are implemented in step functions. And at the moment, step functions are available in US East, so in Virginia, Ohio, Oregon, Ireland, and Tokyo. So uh, if you happen to be uh, running in those, in those regions, um, go check it out. It's um, gonna make your apps far more flexible than ever before. Now, talking of other things that we announced at reInvent and are now releasing, another one was AWS Organizations, which we, Covered off briefly in a, in a previous episode, Pete, but um, just give us another quick rundown now that it's generally available. Yes, it's, uh, it's out in the wild, like you said before. Um, now, what Organizations is about is if you happen to have more than one account, uh, you probably want to use Organizations. If you are an enterprise where you have you know tens, hundreds, or potentially thousands of accounts, this is for you as well, predominantly because what it gives you is the ability to create and control um, all of those accounts under a single view. So think of AWS Organizations as it's a service that provides uh, management functionality for cross-account management of security and configuration. So you can create groups of accounts and then apply policies to those particular groups. And these organizations enable you to essentially manage everything in a one single place without requiring essentially to run custom scripts or manually log in into all of those accounts to set things up for compliance. So the way you do that is with organizations, you create um, service control policy or SPCs for short that allow you to set up the environment to whatever permissions you want them to be. Now you can also use organizations to uh, you know, automate the creation of new accounts through APIs. Uh, that hasn't been available for a while. There are, there are a few hacks out there where you could programmatically create a, a, an account, an AWS account, and usually we, we had you know, very strict ways of checking we would actually call you back to make sure that you are a real person creating an account. Now with organizations, there's now an API, uh, so you can do it through the API or through the console to create brand new accounts and they inherit you know, um, your configurations as well. So this helps also with the ability to be able to create a single billing view so you can consolidate accounts and have a single payment method for all of those accounts across your organization as well as being able to control you know the uh, the security stature and uh, how those individual accounts are set up so it's available at no additional charge so it's, there's no cost for that it's available in all regions except for Beijing and GovCloud. So certainly go check it out and uh, just be aware that the head end for this runs out of Virginia, but all the uh, uh, service control policies are pushed out across all the regions that we have out there. So yes, very, very powerful um, and watch this space. You know, we have a lot of feature requests for, from customers, how to improve the service even before we launched because uh, it's been asked for quite aggressively. And uh, yeah, it's out there and um, it's a very, very powerful mechanism for controlling lots and lots of accounts. So if you're an MSP, for example, not just an enterprise, and you have lots of accounts, this is going to be a friend of yours for a very long time. Now, Pete, one of my favorite aspects of the AWS cloud is the spot market. Yes. And we've made a number of enhancements to that um, over the last year or so, in, including uh, spot fleets, spot blocks, etc. And we have recently introduced a couple of other nice features too. Yes, absolutely. So we now have something called a spot advisor. 
Now, for those of you that aren't too familiar with Spot, you know, we have lots and lots of EC2, so virtual machine capacity in our infrastructure, and we actually offer that unused capacity on the Spot market. Uh, and the great thing about the Spot market is you can put a bid of a particular number of cents or dollars, if you like, for that virtual machine to, to, to run, um, but we also publish a price. As long as your bid is above the actual price that we're asking for, we will launch a virtual machine, launch an instance, and we will only charge you what our price is. And um, depending on consumption and availability and demand for that particular virtual machine type in a particular region, um, that price may fluctuate. So as long as the price stays below your, below your bid, the virtual machine keeps on running. And if it does exceed that, we pull the plug and give you a two minute warning that we will be uh, unplugging that virtual machine. So we've had lots of customers do some really clever, you know, advanced multi-core processing and batch analysis, um, machine learning, AI training uh, applications and the spot fleet is another mechanism to be able to launch lots and lots of different uh, machines uh, of different sizes to give you lots and lots of cores and capacity. So the spot advisor in a very long-winded way is a, is a tool, there's a button now in the spot console which we can click and it can actually, we actually ask you, you know, how many, you know, what kind of machines do you want to run and how many of them? And we make some recommendations based upon what we see in a, in a spot market as to how much it's going to cost you and the likelihood of those machines being, you know, uh, outbid. In other words, you know, your, your bid being too low. So it's a great way to help customers decide how they should spin up a spot fleet of machines of various different sizes, so instance types. Uh, and also how much they're going to cost. Um, and if that wasn't enough, you can also at launch of the, uh, at the spot fleet, we now have actually also added now a flag, which allows us to basically detect unhealthy instances, Russ. So if we find that an, that an instance becomes unhealthy, we'll send it a, a warning that we're possibly going to be replacing it to give that application a chance to potentially shut down if it's actually still running. Um, and then we will simply shut that machine down and replace it with a brand new one to make sure that we have high availability and your fleet is still up and operational. So two, two really cool things to the spot fleet. A, being able to see what it's going to cost you and how you should potentially create it. And then also once that fleet is running, give you some um, you know, mechanism to be able to relaunch uh, an unhealthy instance that might be in your fleet. So yeah, lots of flexibility around. I mean, it's fairly complicated, Russ. Pete, I reckon we could do a whole show on spot because it is a fantastic way, as you said, to run a lot of processing quite cheaply. And there's a lot of nuance in it. Uh, it's it's fascinating. So I think I think we could do a whole show on that. I mean, I think one of the things that often we don't discuss enough is the fact mm -hmm. that there are actually multiple spot markets. So oh, yeah. every instance type, every size of instance in every availability zone in every region is a separate spot market. So there's a lot of opportunity to to look for the best price for your processing. Exactly right. Yes, you know, you could, you could be launching instances in another region, um, and you know, if it's daytime here, um, say in Australia, it could, it's it's nighttime somewhere else in the world. So you, those prices will be much much lower because people are, aren't utilizing that infrastructure as much. So, okay, the challenge is on. Let us know if you would like us to uh, do a dedicated show on this because uh, there is a lot to this. Um, and certainly there is um, a lot of um, conversations we could have. Now, having said that, Russ, there is also some really cool stuff happening with DynamoDB and uh, some TTLs. Tell us more about that. There is indeed. So as you guys all know, DynamoDB is our NoSQL database. So if you're not familiar with NoSQL, NoSQL is essentially um, a breed of database that was designed to get around a lot of the limitations of your traditional relational database by dropping some of the 
the things that weren't deemed to be that important, such as the ability to join tables, et cetera, uh, and the trade-off being incredibly high throughput for, for reads and writes. So the NoSQL databases now are an absolutely fundamental part of a lot of, a lot of applications. And DynamoDB is a managed service um, that we have that sits across three availability zones, um, gives you really reliable, consistent single-digit, uh, sorry, single-digit millisecond latency for for reads and writes. And uh, what we found was that uh, customers were using this um, for a number of different workloads, and some of those tables were starting to to get larger and larger. But customers didn't necessarily need to keep that data beyond a certain time frame because uh, for certain applications, it then kind of lost its value. So what they were doing was managing those deletes themselves so they'd actually write their own logic to reach into DynamoDB, work out which rows needed to be deleted, and then they would then do that. Um, that obviously put extra uh, burden on our customers to do that. And in addition, when you were doing that, you were also chewing up your um, allocated provisioned throughput as well. So with Dynamo, you tell us how many reads per second you want and how many writes per second you want. And if you're managing those deletes yourself, then you're going to chew into some of that. So one of the, the requested features we had was to introduce uh, a TTL or a time to live feature where you could just tell us for each item when you actually wanted it to, to be deleted and we would then do that for you. So this is a new feature that we've just released and you enable it table by table. So you have to turn it on for a particular table. And then what you do is you simply add an attribute to each item that uh, specifies when it's no longer uh, of use to you. And you specify that in Unix epoch time. So if you're not familiar with, with epoch time, it's simply the number of seconds that have elapsed since the 1st of January 1970. Uh, so you pop that in there, and then we will then, as a background task, we'll just sweep through your tables and then delete any items where, um, where that, that time has then passed. Now, it's not instantaneous, so you can't kind of uh, say, you know, at this at this particular moment it's going to be gone. There will be some delay between the time you specify and when it actually gets deleted, um, but it will it will um, it will get uh, get deleted from the table. And that's because we have so much data. I mean, a lot of our customers have very large Dynamo tables, um, and this feature is, you know, I kind of look at it as it's the uh, you know, cache eviction policy, right? <laughs> where, where you tell mm. us when you want things to disappear and, you know, lazily behind the scenes, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of getting rid of that. And as Russ said before, you know, a lot of customers will do scans and look at and analyze and see what's been there for too long to be able to, you know, then evict it themselves. Um, this is a great way of uh, letting us take care of the, uh, the undifferentiated heavy lifting. That's right. And the other nice thing, Pete, is that it's integrated into DynamoDB Stream. So when we actually delete that item, that will show up in the uh, in the DynamoDB Stream if you have that turned on for the table. So what that allows you to do is then um, a couple of things. A, if you wanted to be notified when particular items had been deleted, that might be important to you. Um, or you may have downstream systems that you're trying to keep in sync with Dynamo. Uh, in which case you also need to delete it from those systems as well. So it was important for us that these things didn't just kind of disappear silently, that they would actually show up in the stream, in the DynamoDB stream, Dynamo stream, so you could pick that up. 
Yeah, so I mean, just to t- 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 touch a point on that. Uh, yeah, so you may not need to actually delete it. You may actually want to do take that action to potentially push it to a a, a different slower or a secondary storage for that particular record that's being you know, evicted in this case. So yeah, very that's cool, right. very cool. Now, there's also some obviously secure is a big job, and you know we take it very seriously. It's a job zero for everyone at Amazon, and we often tell our customers to think the same way. Safety in transit and encryption in transit is very important. So tell us a little bit about the uh, SQL Server. Uh, in RDS and SSL. So this is a, yeah, this is a a new feature we've just introduced for SQL Server engines that are running on RDS. And what you can now do is you can actually force client applications that are connecting to that database to use SSL. So if if a client tries to connect and isn't using SSL, then the database will reject it. So you can kind of force that. for those instances now. Now there's a slight nuance here, Pete, which is that if that instance is in a VPC and it was created before the 5th of August, 2014, there's a few little extra steps you need to take just to make sure that this all works properly. Um, it's to do with the certificates, etc. It's all well documented in the, um, in the documentation, but just so you're aware, if you do have an older instance in a VPC, then, um, then just have a look at the docs for that. Sure, great stuff. And what about the, Schema conversion tool. I think she's. We're working very aggressively on um, helping customers move stuff into AWS. Uh, so tell us about what's been happening in the schema conversion world. So as you know, there's basically two sides to to data database migration. The first is the actual schema itself, so the, the table definitions, etc., and the objects within a database. And then the second part is obviously the the data. Now we have two tools that help in this space. The first is the schema conversion tool which can help you with the former stuff which is tables and objects and then the latter is dms which is the database migration service now what we've done in the uh, in the schema conversion tool is actually added the ability now to not only convert schemas from a couple of the data warehousing tools out there like greenplum to teaser oracle and teradata so the, the tool will actually convert those schemas into uh, Redshift-specific syntax. You can also actually use SCT to do some of the data extraction for you as well, uh, specifically for Oracle and Teradata. So we have these migration agents, which will actually then run uh, and extract those um, those tables for you, which you can then load into S3 and then into, into Redshift. So speaking of loading into S3 from Redshift, there's also some additional security that we've also added to the actual push-outs to S3. Yeah, that's right. So um, if you've been following what's been happening with S3 and KMS, you'll know that uh, we've had for a while the ability to set server-side encryption on your objects in S3 and have KMS manage the keys for those, which is a really nice feature because then... Um, it's very easy to then encrypt and decrypt those objects as you need them. And for a while, Redshift has supported the ability to have the data that you're going to load into it encrypted in S3 with server-side encryption in KMS. What uh, a lot of customers asked for was then the ability to have the same thing when they're unloading from Redshift. So sometimes customers will unload data from Redshift to S3 because they want to potentially uh, move it to another Redshift instance, or maybe they want to share it with another application, uh, and so they wanted to have that integration with uh, with the the S3 encryption as well. So we've added that now, so you can actually just specify that when you run the unload, it will do the um, the encryption for you, 
as it writes to S3, and then you can hold that key in KMS. So um, quite a nice, neat way of doing that, Pete. Yeah, so security, 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 job zero for everybody. And uh, that's just another example of thinking about enabling this to make sure that you know your data is always safe when it rests. Now, what about Elasticsearch? You know, what have we been doing in uh, improving performance in that space? Well, I feel like we've been talking about Elasticsearch a lot over the last few episodes. We have, we have. Because we seem to be uh, introducing new features um, at a tremendous rate. So we talked uh, last episode about Elasticsearch 5.1 now being available, which is fantastic. And what we've just released more recently is we've increased the number of instance types that you can now run your Amazon Elasticsearch on. So we now support the M4s, the C4s, and the R4s, uh, which will give you, obviously, better performance um, at a lower price than the previous generation, Mm -hmm. which is nice. Uh, The C4 in particular is great if you've got particularly high indexing requirements um, because it's fairly compute intensive obviously Uh, and the other nice thing pete is that you can now increase the ebs volume size up to one and a half terabytes per node that's a lot Mm -hmm. that is a lot and now what that means then is that you can basically store up to 30 terabytes in a single elastic search domain which is triple what you could do previously so we had a lot of customers who were saying, look, we're enjoying using Elasticsearch. We're enjoying using Amazon Elasticsearch because we like the fact that you guys are managing it and we're not. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, please allow us to store more data in there. So that's what we've done. I think it also increased the IOPS for those as well to uh, get a higher throughput on the SSD volumes as well. We did. So you can go up to 16,000 um, IOs per second now. So if you've got a particularly demanding workload, then, um, then that's particularly nice. Um, and cluster and, updates and yeah, uh, the only other thing I wanted to mention there was, um, yeah, so if you do have a running domain and you want to change the instance type, you can actually just do that either through the console or through the CLI or the API, the SDKs, and just basically specify that you want to configure the cluster and then change the instance underneath. Yes, and I think we also managed to speed up the actual um, updates and snapshots by up to 50% as well. So, yes, just uh, you know, a sign of you know, incremental improvements all around. Um, yeah, Elasticsearch elastic on a tear, Pete. <laughs> oh, mate. And uh, look, I like spice in my food, but uh, I also like Quickside and Spice. So there's a bit of a refresh that's going on. Do you want to tell our listeners about that? Look, I will. And between you and me, Spice is my favorite AWS acronym. We do have a lot of acronyms, but Spice is my favorite. Yeah, which stands for <laughs> Super Fast Parallel In Memory calculation engine how's that very quick much 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 better than trying to expand the acronym <laughs> so so let me give you a quick uh, a quick quick site refresher so quicksight is the uh, the visualization uh, tool which we released um, last year and there's basically two components to this Pete. so there's the there's the actual front end itself the ui that you use to do the visualizations uh, and that can either connect directly to your data source, so it could connect to, to a database, for example, or to, to Redshift, etc. But we also have an in-memory engine as well, which is the SPICE piece. And what SPICE does is basically allow you to get much faster response time, obviously, because it's in-memory. Mm-hmm. So the typical use case would be that you would have your, your data store, let's say you have a Redshift instance, and you would load then a subset of that data into SPICE and then your users would then query um, the Spice engine to get to get nice, fast, low latency response for their for their dashboards and for their for their um, their queries. However, 
previously that was a manual refresh. So somebody actually had to go in and, and manually say, right, refresh the data that's in that's in Spice because it's changed in the underlying database. Mm-hmm. So what we've done now is that you can actually schedule that. So you can specify uh, the time of day, the the frequency, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, uh, obviously the time zone that you're in, mm-hmm. um, and when you want that, uh, that refresh to start. So um, a relatively simple change, but quite powerful for a lot of customers who were wanting their their spice data to be refreshed constantly as the underlying data set changed and make sure that people's dashboards were as up to date as they could be and look, i think it's really important because a lot of folks run batch jobs and analysis and you know etls that transfer transform and process data at certain times of the day and you know by a certain time of you know usually like say early in the mornings all the data has been loaded you know having spice you know forcefully do a refresh and pick up the latest you know non-stale data so that you can actually update the reports uh, i think it's really useful um very 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 handy uh, and because automated you no longer have to do it um, yourself by hand and uh, well Russ, tell we, us, we're all about automation pete we are all about automation i just want to touch on spice a little bit more because spice is actually quite a cool um, you know, nifty little sports car you know, functionality there because uh, you don't actually have to just use quick sites to connect to it, do you? Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. You um, you you connect up quick site to Spice. Now, quick site actually, there's the web UI, but uh, there's also um, going to be a tablet uh, UI as well, mm. uh, which would be nice. So you can connect to that from a number of different uh, different front ends. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. So there's something else that I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, um, and that is again another service that we announced at Reinvent. And uh, this is sort of in the, you know, connecting the real world with uh, with technology, and that's AWS recognition. Uh, Russ, uh, I'm a big fan of that because uh, we've we've just um, released some functionality. Uh, and for those that, that don't know what recognition is, it's essentially it's a it's a service that you can give an image to. And it will do scene analysis and be able to report to say, hey, I'm seeing a car in this place. And, uh, you know, there have been a whole bunch of online projects with for IoT where people have been using Amazon recognition to, for example, detect when someone's parked illegally in your car spot uh, for a little, little Raspberry Pi, or, you know, talking to recognition backends. Um, but I'm proud to say that we've actually been extending and evolving this service because it is managed by us. Uh, we now have the ability to, if you find a picture in that in that picture, a face of somebody, um, Amazon recognition can now provide an age range for that particular individual, which is pretty cool, right? So it opens up some interesting use cases uh, to be able to not just tell, you know, you know that someone's wearing glasses or they're smiling or they're happy, but you, know, you can actually now tell, hey, this is actually a kid versus an adult. Um, so it opens up, you know, a whole set of new ways of doing sentiment analysis. And, uh, you know, we also give you some CloudWatch metrics to get more visibility of the, the rate of uh, successful and unsuccessful processing of uh, your images, the response times, uh, how many faces, for example, we've detected, a number of labels, in other words, how many things we've found in that image. Uh, so these are all becoming um, now available. So yeah, it's quite a powerful way because recognition gives you now a way to take the real world as an input and then start to actually give you some, give the systems information um, to actually you know, interpret the real world. That's right. Now I'll tell you a great use case for this, for the, uh-huh. for the age feature within recognition was for me to try and work out how old you are. 
<laughs> awesome. Now I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I did that, Pete. Because I'm Go convinced. On. You remember the old story about Dorian Gray? Yes. Who remained forever youthful while mm-hmm. the picture of himself aged in the attic. Yep. Well, I I, I think that you're Dorian Gray because you don't you don't seem to age. So I thought really? maybe. <laughs> Maybe recognition could tell. Uh, okay, so where, where I where I couldn't. So where what, my own what, facial did, what did the oracle tell you then in that case? What did, what did, what well, <laughs> I, I'll have to tell you offline. I couldn't possibly, uh, you know, give away such personal information on such a public channel. <laughs> but look, it's interesting, right? Because you know you can use this to detect you know someone's age, and uh, yeah, there are many different use cases. For example, you know because we can detect gender and age um, and those kind of elements. Um, you know, you might actually say, hey, this person can't use this system. You know, we have customers using CCD footage that they feed into recognition to detect whether somebody should or shouldn't be coming to a say a sports venue, for example, um, because they've been banned or you know. All of this kind of really interesting use cases, uh, or maybe using your face just as, an, as a trigger, you know, for, for robotics use cases. Um, you know, uh, my son and I are trying to build a little robot here uh, and use recognition to actually activate the robot the moment it sees someone looking at it to start a to start a you know, Lex and Polly conversation. So, yeah, lots of cool stuff you can do with that service. Very nice, Pete. Very nice. Mm. Now, uh, we've touched on a bit of security today, but just give us a quick rundown on uh, what's going on with some stuff in in the HIPAA world. Yes, so we've actually released a, um, a quick start uh, recently that supports HIPAA. And um, HIPAA, for those of you that live in the US would know what the acronym is, but for those outside of the world, uh, it stands for the US Health Insurance uh, Portability and Account- Accountability Act. So what we've done there is released a quick start with documentation and CloudFormation templates um, that actually will spin up an environment within 30 minutes for you. Now, that's cool, but what's even cooler is that it supports technical controls which are part of HIPAA. So it controls for HIPAA phase one, there are 52 statutes which we actually address. And for HIPAA phase two, we have 180 statutes that we've actually covered in an Excel spreadsheet. So that spreadsheet will actually show you the controls and the mechanisms and how they are being addressed by this particular quick start. So essentially, uh, the beauty of this is that you can take this template um, spin this thing up and be compliant across phase one and phase two of HIPAA and then evolve that template with your own custom applications um, to be even more HIPAA compliant, right? So it's a great way to uh, get you started on a HIPAA compliant journey uh, in AWS. That's right. And I've had some customers actually who don't necessarily need to be HIPAA compliant, but they kind of use it as a bit of a roadmap, a bit of a template because the controls are so stringent. They know that if they meet those, um, you know, they can they can meet uh, many other um, of the certifications as well. Yeah, and look, it's 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 a, it's a great again. It's a, that reminder of you know security, security being job zero for everybody. You know, if you can, why not? If it doesn't require too much extra effort, if it's just a matter of turning on a feature or or modifying a cloud formation template as a as a as a base template for your future work, um, why not do that? And speaking of security, again. Um, Russ, tell us a little bit about what's been happening with EC2 instance IAM roles. Yeah, this is just a quick one, Pete, but again, quite powerful. The uh, This feature allows you now to attach or replace an IAM role to your existing EC2 instance. So an IAM role is essentially um, credentials that you can, you can use uh, to access certain of the services um, rather than have... Uh, a user credentials um, on a machine um, that obviously is not ideal. So often customers will use roles um, to um, to do that instead. Uh, but previously you couldn't, um, once you'd attached a role to an EC2 instance, you couldn't change it. 
Whereas now you can actually do that to an existing instance, which is uh, makes that uh, a lot easier to manage. Yeah, it's very cool because we also do the key rotation automatically for you. And for those that are, you know, sidebar warning, uh, for those that would actually want to find out how we do it, we actually use the uh, metadata for the instance to actually hold those credentials and rotate those keys on a regular basis. So if you look at the metadata instance from your, that instance itself, which it can only see that metadata itself, um, our SDKs uh, will actually leverage those credentials of the instance uh, if you don't hard code or have any credentials on that physical instance itself. So it removes the, uh, uh, the, the other attack vector of having something potentially compromised on that instance uh, and then you know, have your credentials leaked. They can't actually be leaked unless you actually are there. So yes, it's another way of uh, making things a lot more robust and hardened, Russ. That's right, Pete. Now I think we've covered pretty much everything except <laughs> One more thing, just just one more thing. Let's finish off with some exciting networking news. Yes, well, we've left this one till the end. Um, and again, I'm a big network fan as well. So this is for those who are thinking of using or already are using Direct Connect. Um, and this is called link aggregation. So if you are using one gig or 10 gig links, you can now actually aggregate them together into what we're calling a LAG, a link aggregation group. So, whether, so if you're in Virginia, California, Oregon, Ohio, Canada, um, uh, South America, Mumbai, or Seoul, those regions currently support lag on Direct Connect. So that's for existing connections or new connections that you're about to provision. So what it means is those users who are going to purchase ports, you can now treat them as a single managed connection uh, as a part of the lag configuration. So if you have lots and lots of connections, say so you have lots of 10 gig connections, or combinations of those, you can now actually set this up as a single connection flow for your on-premise connectivity into AWS. So when you're ordering uh, that, those links from AWS, um, in the past you would have been setting up um, individual uh, virtual interfaces to connect you either to the public endpoints, the public VIFs, or directly into your VPC. Uh, and the challenge that most customers actually had, they would be running multiple BGP, Border Gateway Protocol, uh, you know, advertisements across those links, which can become a little bit unwieldy when you're really on scale. Um, so in some cases, some customers, uh, you know, physical routing equipment uh, had limitations on how big or how many connections they could manage or how many BGP advertisements they could actually run. So we actually came up with link aggregation to simplify that. So the other, the, the other nice thing about link aggregation is that um, in the past, customers had very little visibility into the ports that were being provisioned at the routers at our end. Um, and it was sometimes entirely possible that they would end up with all of their ports on a single router. And ideally, when you're setting up multiple connections, you want to be connecting to as many of our uh, you know, uh, routers on our side, uh, but not the same one ideally. So now we give you more visibility into where those ports are being terminated. Also, if you're working with uh, providers that are providing a direct connect uh, services on your behalf, um, again, they will have more visibility into where they're plugging things into that infrastructure. So the cool thing about it is the link aggregation groups, you know, certainly, you know, help you with you know, traffic flows, um, to make sure everything is being routed in the right direction. So across those uh, link aggregation groups, traffic is load balanced, uh, the flows are controlled, uh, and it gives you more control over the bandwidth aggregation. So Russ, it's a really nice way of now, again, taking more, uh, you know, when you're on scale, additional complexity and trying to, again, inventing and simplifying for our customers to make sure it's a lot simpler and easy to manage. So great innovation in the, uh, in the plumbing. Pete, let me tell you, I've never really got excited about networking, but 
when you talk about it, <laughs> you, you get me excited. Awesome. So I could add networking to my instancing, instances and gaming background. Awesome. That's right. Oh, that's that's your third thing now, networking. Well, I hope it's rubbing off to you guys and you, you know, you're know you enjoying our show. And uh, so please do let us know. Uh, are we hitting the mark for you? Uh, you know, Send us some, some more Twitter feedback. Uh, let us know, you know whether you're shoveling snow or shoveling um, you know, other things uh, or whatever it is that you might be doing while listening to us because uh, we've, we've been getting lots and lots of feedback. Um, but yeah, we're keen to know more. And uh, yeah, we're up for a challenge. You know, let us know what you want to hear more about. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for joining us. And uh, we look forward to you tuning in next time. Yeah. See you in show 13, guys. Ciao. Signing off. This is Russ. And this is Dr. Pete. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.